Welcome everybody to the uh, introduction presentation to the world of uh, ITU's Center for Digital Play. My name is Miguel Sicat, uh, and I'm the head of this center. And I will be talking you a little bit uh, about talking to you a little bit about the history of studying games and play at the ITU and why we have decided to do something a little bit new and start and open a new center. Um, and after that, I will have the enormous pleasure of introducing four of my colleagues, the, head, the heads of each of the research groups that um, form the, the center, and they will be talking specifically about um, their research and how uh, that work sort of fits in, in this uh, uh, center. So. Uh, that's what we are uh, going to be up today. So it's a great, uh, I'm, I'm really excited and I'm really happy that you're all here. Uh, it's the sort of introduction or introducing the Center for Digital Play. So this feels like, um, I mean, I know I should do it a little bit more solemn and so on, but it, you know, it's the Center for Digital Play. This feels a little bit like academic reference now, the Lion King. Right, so you know when when the lion gets the little lion and presents it, and so like this is what we are doing with the center. We are presenting it to the world, and then everybody should uh, be happy about looking at it. Um, this is the introduction to the Center for Digital Play, and I'm really happy that you're all here. And I have a menu, my own menu for you. I will be taking somewhere around 10 to 15 minutes of your time. Um, I will be talking about the history of us at the ITU. Then I will be talking a little bit about the future we live in. Uh, the future is already here. Um, it's just unevenly distributed. What's the role of play? Um, why is it that we should study play? And we will talk a little bit about the structure of the center, because this center is uh, a federation. Um, and I'll explain a little bit uh, that later on. So this is what's going to happen in my uh, 10 minutes here. And, and so when, when we made the center and we realized that you know, nobody knows us, um, the first question that, that I thought we needed to address was, why does the ITU need a center for digital play? We have uh, a number of different centers and research directions and research ideas. Why a center for digital play? And this is a question that I need to answer going back in time to uh, what the ITU has been doing for a very long time, and at the same time, also going forward in time and realizing what's ahead of us in terms of um, you know, the state of the world and what kind of world we are doing uh, an intervention through research on. So I would like to start with a little bit of history. Now, I have not only, uh, um, I have been at the ITU for uh, give or take 20 years. Um, so I cannot claim I have been here from the start, but a lot of this history that I'm going to narrate um, is sort of in first person. And, and um, one of the things that I would like to stress already at the beginning is that even though this is a new center, it's not breaking up with the past, it's building on something that was already here that, that, that's phenomenal, but that, that needs to sort of turn into a different direction, a more complete direction. So what is this history that we are continuing in uh, this new center? So 
The ITU was founded in 1999, um, and already from the beginning of the ITU, there was a strong interest in studying games. Um, one of the founding uh, um, characteristics of, of the ITU, one of the groups of people that define why this place is so special, were researchers studying games. We have Lisbeth here who started uh, studying games here and, and pushed really for the ITU to focus on the study of games from a cultures and humanities point of view. And so did Susanna Tosca and Jesper Juhl and Tolstein Johansson. All of those people, they built this house. The house that we are in now, the, this, this sort of playful, gameful house. So games and the study of play has been at the ITU as an identity almost already from the beginning. And that identity got strengthened at two very important points in time, uh, in, in, uh, with two very important hirings in 2003, where we hired Espinosa, um, who is uh, still with, with the Center for Digital Play. He's a, a full professor. Um, and he kind of brought um, the will and the determination to focus this research on games at the ITU and strengthen this structure that was already here. Um, he also brought the international visibility of being one of the people that created the field of game studies. One of them. So, so in 2003, Espen's hiring was uh, very important for our identity as a place that studies the culture and the uh, humanistic understanding of computer games. And at the same year, actually on the same month, we hired T.L. Taylor, who's now a professor at MIT, and who brought not only uh, her research on player communities and what is it that actually people do when we play, but also a strong um, ethos of who we should be and what kind of conversations we should have um, at, at the ITU and in the games group. So those two uh, scholars helped shape a little bit the personality and the character of the games group early on. And through their work, together with the work of all the other scholars I have just mentioned before, in 2006, officially, the Center for Computer Games Research opened its doors. And that is probably um, what some of you know the, the, the ITU's uh, games research for, uh, a center that would study games from a really wide uh, perspective. At the same time, on the same year, we managed to open a, a master's education, the Media Technology and Games, MTG, um, education, which was crystallizing that interest in uh, games research uh, and also focusing on um, research-based teaching. So we could not only do research in games, but we could also educate people who would study and make games. And I think we had a fairly good impact in uh, both the making and the thinking about games. And now another important date in this history is 2007 when we hired a now professor in Malta, Georgos Janakakis, who brought uh, an AI perspective to the Center for Computer Games Research. He was um, 
our first sort of official technical hire, um, somebody with a computer science background, uh, but who was also very able to I'm sorry, Jorgos, I'm speaking to you in the past as if you were dead, but he's actually in the audience. <laughs> um, <laughs> he's still alive and well, as you can see. But uh, Jorgos brought um, this willingness to play across fields, not just working on artificial intelligence, but also talking to all the humanists and social scientists and designers that are in the room. And I think very much the... Uh, AI side of the Center for Computer Games Research, and now the Center for uh, Digital Play started at that time uh, with that hiring, which was then continued by hiring uh, Julian Togelius at its time, and now uh, Sebastian Risi, of whom you'll hear a little bit more in uh, a second. And then in uh, 2009, we decided that media technology and games, even though it has the best abbreviation ever. Uh, for those of you who play Magic the Gathering, you are very confused. Can I get a Magic the Gathering Masters? Nope. Um, it's actually about games. Very, very many disappointed students we had over the years. Um, so we changed the name of our Masters to Games to, very, to make very explicit that what we are teaching about and researching is games. And all of this works. Um, the Center for Computer Games Research was a very well-known international research group. Um, most of the faculty that we've been able to attract over time are leading in their research fields. Um, we have attracted massive grants. We have published in the top venues, both in uh, conferences and in uh, academic publishers. We do very well. Um, and I know Jan Telon, I shouldn't say that, but it's actually true. We are very good at what we do. And I know what you're thinking. You know, if it ain't broken, why fix it? Why is it that uh, <laughs> we change things? So in uh, January 2020, um, Espen, who was the head of the Center for Computer Games Research, um, decided to step down and I would take over and um, I think I, I didn't, I, hopefully I didn't do it exclusively on my own. It was part of a broader, bigger uh, conversation. But there's one thing about this focus on games that I think we need to keep, but perhaps reflect upon. Because all of this is a history that started in the late 1990s, but we are living in a brave new world. And the reference is not casual. Everything that, that we do about games is still excellent, but the world in which we are establishing conversations, doing interventions through research, uh, talking to different stakeholders is a different world than that uh, of 1999. So we also needed to change things. We needed to adapt to this brave new world. And how does this brave new world look? Well, I'll just give you a couple of examples. On the top uh, left, um, that's, a, that's a generation, uh, an image generated by DALI, an open AI uh, image generator. You've probably heard of either DALI or Stable Diffusion or uh, Mid Journey or one of these tools, right? You write a prompt, it generates a, an image. Or you write a prompt and it generates a text. 
That is a fairly advanced machine learning system that we interact with and we make it popular by playing with it. The first, the first sort of way these tools become popularized, the first, the first you know, time where we get people outside of the bubbles of research and, and uh, corporations talking about these tools is through something that I would call a toy. Let me see how this thing works. And then we have DALI. It's not a game, but it's definitely something that we, as play people, can study. Or we can look at uh, retweets and likes. I don't know if you remember Twitter. It was a social network uh, very popular until like three weeks ago. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I played the game of Twitter for a long time. And I, you know, if any of you plays the game of Twitter, you know that at some moment there was a moment, you know, you, you needed to tweet something that you maybe wanted to be read by certain audiences and then it would go viral in certain communities and then you would have to post either at East Coast time or West Coast time or some other place. And we were all competing for those numbers, retweets or likes. Not a game, but experienced very much through the lens of playable media. Um, that thing over there, um, I don't know if any of you recognizes it, it's the uh, bottom of boredom, I think it's called. It's a button, it's a physical button at the National Museum, at the National Museum of Denmark, where if you got bored, you would hit it and then something would happen. Actors would do something. It was really panicky for me, like the first time I tried it, because uh, uh, you, know, you push it and you don't know what's going to happen. In a museum, I was playing. It was great. Uh, children liked it too. Um, it's always good to bring the children as an excuse to push all kinds of buttons. And that is in a museum, a form of play as mediation, as communication, as engagement to people, with people, right? And finally, uh, why don't I have a game and I do have a squid game? Because games are not just the things that we play, you know, around the table with uh, dice and, and paper or with a controller in our hand. They are a cultural discourse. Squid game is saying something about capitalism in um, Asia, but it's also saying it through the language of games, a language that we could study. We can not only study games, but we can study how games are used in our culture pervasively to explain and to address certain complicated topics. So this is the world that we are facing, a world in which the tools that we have developed over time to study games and play can be applied to understand and intervene in many different domains. And that's why we needed to move beyond games. Games are still central to the entertainment economy. But digital plays so much more than just games. And for, to understand all of those phenomena, we need not only new tools and new methods and the old tools and the old methods that we had, but we need new conversations. It's not enough anymore to be a you know, master in a silo. We need to talk to each other and we need to collaborate and try to understand how we together can make sense of all of those realities, of all that brave new world. And I also think that we need to do so uh, to develop tools that avoid becoming or, or amusing ourselves to death. 
The disciple of Marshall McLuhan, the, the media theorist Neil Postman, wrote a book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, where he basically made, made the argument that there are two dominant dystopias in, in Western culture uh, in the second half of the 20th century, 1984 and Brave New World. When anything in our digital culture happens, the first thing that we say is like 1984. The Snowden leaks, 1984. Um, social credit systems, 1984. Everything is about surveillance. Postman's argument was more interesting. He said that actually Brave New World, the novel by Aldous Huxley, explain, explains our society much better and our risks much better because in that society, among other sort of dystopian things, people were entertaining themselves so they didn't see the world around them, so they could ignore it. They were just consuming entertainment mindlessly so they could ignore the realities of the world around them. And I'm not saying we are in that world, but there is a risk of going towards that world. So the study of play is not just the study of how people can have fun, but also what happens to people when they are having fun. What happens to technology when we use it for fun? How do we situate this play impulse in a world that is clearly political, that needs to think about social questions, that needs to think about how we treat others and how we treat ourselves. So we do have a mission that's aligned with ethics, that's aligned with politics. We do occasionally activist research. And that is part of doing play research. It's a way of engaging with the world. And that means that I have to be a little bit academic, and that's why I had to check that the door cannot be open. Because you may be thinking, OK, you've just thrown the word play around all the time. What do you mean by play? This, what is this play thing that you talk about when you talk about the Center for Digital Play? So I'll explain it by going step by step. And the first step is our dominant premise. Play is at the center of digital technology and culture. This is, a, this is a, our sort of slightly uh, arrogant point of uh, connection. You cannot understand digital culture or digital technologies without play. Every time we have a new technology, if, it's if it matters to us, we are going to play with it. We have DALI. We have virtual reality. We have augmented reality. We, all of it, every technology that we put out there, we are going to try to play with it because it is part of how we understand things. So what we need to do as researchers, a motivation to work together and to be in the center is to understand why and how play is at the center of digital technology and culture, and what type of phenomenon it is. And you know, there's books and books written about how to define play. I'm not going to do that, uh, except, of course, I am. Uh, what is play? And I'm going to tell you, play is whatever we do because we don't have to do it. When we are forced to do something, we are not playing. When we are push to do something, we are not playing. When we get all these digital technologies that are, are all about sort of production and efficiency and whatever, well-being, 
we are not playing with them, but when we appropriate them, when we use them in ways they are not meant to, or maybe when we abuse the ways in which they are meant to work, when we are doing something because we choose, then we are playing. And that's a phenomenon that we are interested in. All those activities that happen because they don't need to happen. We choose them. We actively engage in them. Some of those free us from monotony. Some of those are liberatory, emancipatory. Some of those trap us. They convince us that we are actually doing that for fun. And that's where we need to raise our uh, critical mind and think about what's going on when we play. Do we really have that freedom to choose? And with these premises in mind, we think that playing is making sense. Making sense of what? Well, first of all, making sense of the world. When we play, we are interpreting the world around us. We are making sense of everything that is around, including our position in the world. But it's also making sense of technology. We see a technological thing, and we start playing with it. Um, one of the first things that people who are learning to program do is to learn to program a game. Not only because games are interesting programming things, but, but also because it's fun. Play is making sense of what technology does, and most importantly, what it could do. And play is also making sense of others. Play is a way of relating to others by voluntarily agreeing to connect, by voluntarily agreeing to relate to others, to figure out who are they, who am I towards them, and how can we play together. And while we are driven by this idea of um, playing as the heart of or the center of digital culture and digital technology, there's another thing that I think we all consider most important. And perhaps most defining of what play is. Play is not only what we do because we don't have to. Play is also acting on what could be, an exploration of the possible. When we play, we don't settle for what is, but we actually live in and act on what could be. Temporarily in the form of a game uh, or a toy, but we are exploring those possibilities. We are not settled on what is, but we act on what could be. And that is enormously liberating and enormously frustrating and sometimes enormously captivating. This possibility of creating a world that does not exist unless we keep on making it happen. That's why you know, the, all the pleasures of play happen. And this is a weird phenomenon. This is a strange phenomenon. It happens across technologies. It happens across people. It happens across cultures. How do we make sense of all of this in a world that's clearly defined by digital technologies? How do we make sense of this? by making a center. <laughs> but how, what type of center? Because, you know, research centers, um, there's many types of research centers. I've even taken courses about like, how research centers should look like. And um, 
I am privileged to be the colleague and occasional boss of some of the brightest people I've, I've met. Um, and it's, uh, it's, an, it's enormously fun to come to work. And at the same time, um, I know that my colleagues and myself only thrive if there's a measure of uh, freedom, a measure of liberty in understanding these general directions. So as head of center, my job is not to get in the way. Don't quote me on that, because like, <laughs> oh no, I'm on a live stream, and now I've said it in public. Anyway, not get in the way. And most importantly, help tie together all these directions and make sure that we are working on from many different angles, from many different perspectives, in many different conversations, this idea of play being at the center of digital technology and digital culture. In order to have those conversations, our center is actually a federation of research groups. Um, federations are great. When uh, your multi-billionaire buys your social network, you go federated. Um, so federation is also like a funny thing to do right now. It's a good thing to do. But the idea is um, we are pulled together by, uh, by our shared interests, but we go deep in specific directions. We talk to each other, but we also go into specific directions. And that's why we have a federation, a group of people who voluntarily agree to work under the same roof, within the same center, in, in the same general trajectory, but with original independent directions. And there, therefore, I cannot tell you that the center is this monolith of a discourse. I've given you our trajectory, the rationale for our trajectory. But what we do, actually, on a day-to-day -day basis is work on these four research groups. The Creative AI Lab, the Games Group, the Media Art and Design, and the Digital Life and Social Practices Research Group. This is the federation of the Center for Digital Play. And the good thing about this structure is that I am now done talking to you. <laughs> um, and I will be uh, uh, giving this space to my colleagues to introduce the work they do and um, their own sort of directions within this group. So you will get a nuanced, um, deep understanding of the inner workings of the Center for Digital Play. Um, we now, these are the heads of each group. Uh, Professor Sebastian Ries is the head of the Creative AI Lab. He won't be presenting his uh, um, re research group and his um, work today because he's on paternity leave, uh, which is something that um, makes us all very happy that um, he can actually be on paternity leave. Take uh, leaves, uh, paternal leaves when you can. Um, we also have uh, the games group. The head of the group is, as of a couple of hours ago, uh, <laughs> the associate professor Hans Joachim Backe, Hayo Backe. Uh, we are going to have um, associate professor uh, Hannah Wiemann present um, her work and a representation of the games group. But we are actually going to have both the head of the digital life and social practices, head of group uh, associate professor Elizabeth Klastrup, and the head of media art and design, associate professor Anna Sunnes-Lövli, 
they are going to be presenting their work. So this is what's uh, going to happen in a second. Um, that was basically that uh, from me. I, I'm very happy that you all came here to listen a little bit to what the, our center is about. And now I am going to leave the stage. No, it's actually uh, Anna's. Uh, yes. Uh, it's, it's all a game, so it's, it just turns out that I've put the slides in the wrong order. Uh, so, uh, Anas, uh, I am giving you the baton, um, or equivalent, and I'm also giving you this um, contraption. Yeah? Thank you. Uh, how do I put it on? So, you, you basically clip... Can I make yes, a touch? Please, please, yes. pinch me. I have, I have pinched you, and I think... Yeah, that should work. All right. All right. Thank you. Uh, can you hear me well to the mic? Yeah. <coughs> so, yeah, my name is Anders Lövli, uh, and this is the rest of the group of media, art, and design. Uh, obviously, we chose the name mainly in order to make a cool acronym, so we can say that we are mad scientists, um, to the extent that we are scientists at all. Um, so we're a small group, we're five people, and then we have some friends that like to play with us uh, sometimes. Um, I thought I'd steal one of uh, Miguel's slides. He said playing is exploring uh, the possible. I thought that was a cool thing that you could also say about design. Designing is about exploring what's possible. Um, and design, of course, has a, is a creative practice that has many connections to play. Um, there are many ways to explore what is possible. We focus on experience design, uh, by which we mean exploring how technology can be used to facilitate new experiences. Meaning uh, we don't put technology first, we put the experience first. Uh, we are working not with one technology, but with a range of technology and ways in which to use them to create interesting experiences. Um, and this way of, of working is maybe not so far from art either. Maybe you could also say that art is about exploring the possible, maybe also the impossible. Um, but we, our work is um, a lot to do with museums. We use um, museums as sort of a playground or an experimental, uh, uh, a place to do experiments. Um, museums are really good places to experiment with experience design because they are uh, places that are set aside from our everyday life where people come to have some sort of experience, often experience that they don't quite know what it is. Uh, it's quite complex. It is about uh, learning about our shared heritage, uh, but it is also about aesthetics and experimenting and often about playing. Uh, so this is why a lot of our research takes place in, in the domain of museums. Um, we did a large EU project that finished uh, not so long ago, um, which ended up with a design framework for hybrid experiences in museums. Uh, this is just a picture of that design framework presented as a website. Um, we did a bunch of experiments in that context. Uh, I'll just give you one example, which was a game uh, made by Karin Reading uh, called Never Let Me Go. Um, a game for two people or a play experience for two people going through an art museum together. Uh, one person controls the movements of the other. So one person is the avatar. Uh, and this is, is a sort of a playful way of exper experiencing art and playing with what art can mean. Um, 
this and many more things you can read about in our book, which came this spring, uh, and it's open access, so if you somehow can get hold of these slides, uh, you can use that link to download our book, and it's free. Um, <clears throat> I decided I didn't want to talk so much about what we've done in the past, I want to talk about what we're doing right now. Um, one, um, one project that fills a lot of our time uh, is this one, which is a collaboration actually with Sebastian Risi from the Creative AI uh, group. It's called Algorithmic Ways of Seeing, Improving Image Recognition by Training on Art Images. Um, it's about, um, partly about image recognition. Um, these networks are, or these, these systems are quite good at uh, recognizing objects in photos, and not so good in other types of images. This is a, a painting by Picasso. Um, 11 different versions of a bull. I don't know, did you see that it was a bull before I said that? Yeah. So some of them are quite uh, easy to recognize and some of them are sort of increasingly abstract. Uh, here's what an algorithm would see one and a half years ago when we tested it. It could see three of them as cows. It didn't know how to distinguish between cow and bull. Um, so. Part of what we're doing in this project is trying to sort of push the state of the art in image recognition algorithms so that they could, let's say, move towards recognizing drawings and paintings uh, and art images uh, in the way that humans can recognize them. Um, and so maybe they could sort of push towards the right end here and, and understanding more of these images. Uh, and then the other part is about design. How can we use these technologies to um, to facilitate novel experiences with art. Um, here's one of the ways we're experimenting with that. This is Peter Kuhn's work. Uh, he is working with uh, an image generation algorithm. Uh, I think it's stable diffusion in this slide. Um, and his idea is, so you, as uh, Miguel was mentioning, you interact with these systems by writing a prompt, right? So you write a piece of text and then the algorithm returns an image interpreting that prompt. Uh, and writing these prompts has become sort of an art, or actually it's called prompt engineering sometimes, and even a commodity. So you can actually go some places to buy prompts, buy good prompts. Um, but it's kind of fiddly. It's kind of hard to figure out, uh, at least if you're not used to it. Um, Peter is trying to explore how we can make this tangible. So what you see here at the bottom, is uh, a little dial, a knob. And he's turned that knob, uh, resulting in a prompt that is about a scary image and resulting in that image. Uh, this is a prototype, and I mean, literally, it started working uh, last week, I think, with one knob. The idea is now to add knobs and sliders and make it a more sort of a, uh, elaborate design that you can play with physically like, or tangibly uh, in different ways. Uh, a similar project, and uh, let's see if this slide works. Uh, do I need to do this? Yeah. So this is a GIF. Uh, this is it's amazing what we can do with technology nowadays. Uh, this is, um, I don't know, you can see a sort of a, a, a light uh, line there forming. This is uh, Christian Sieversen drawing in a virtual interface. Uh, so the white uh, line is him drawing and everything else is an algorithm trying to fill in the image. So it's, the idea here is uh, sort of a collaborative drawing experience. Uh, the human is drawing and the algorithm is filling in. 
Um, this is an, an ongoing exploration together with the Munch Museum in Norway. Uh, the algorithm is trained or is going to be trained on Munch's uh, drawings. There's a big collection of, of Edward Munch's drawings. Uh, I think the current version uh, actually hasn't been, I'm not sure how much of that has sort of uh, been fine-tuned on Edward Munch's work right now. So it doesn't look very Edward Munch-like right now. Still, this is also a work in progress. But the idea is that you should have sort of this experience of, um, of having Edward Munch filling in your drawing and, and uh, learning about Edward Munch's art in that way, as opposed to just you know, standing and looking at, at the finished images. Um, final example, uh, this is Mia Falk Yates' uh, work with the Fredericks Bar Museums here in, uh, in Copenhagen, uh, specifically for the Museum of Humor and Satire. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, this is based on sound, so I cannot show it to you in a way that does it justice. But it's, um, it's a sound installation that is, uh, tries to give you the experience of putting you in the, in the place of an actor the last three minutes before they go on stage. So they're standing behind the curtain that you can sort of vaguely see there. Uh, you put on these um, headphones. It uses binaural sound that sort of gives you a very uh, spatial uh, experience of sound. And, and, uh, and, and basically sort of lets, lets you hear everything that is going on behind stage just before they go on stage. Uh, a very different project from the other ones, uh, but the, the similarity is that uh, it's about bringing in the immaterial uh, aspects of heritage. Um, and that is one of, one of the great advantages of, uh, let's call it, experience technologies. Uh, broad array of technologies, but. Uh, what technology can do for museums is that while museums traditionally are very much about showing artifacts and get, putting people in the role of going around looking at artifacts, there is so much about heritage that is important that isn't artifacts, but it's immaterial. Such as for the Museum of Humor and Satire, it's everything about live performance, about the tension, about the nervousness of actors and, and audiences and, and everything that goes on in that live interaction, which cannot really be communicated by putting a bunch of artifacts on display in a museum. Uh, and that is where these technologies can help. Uh, as, as, as you can see also with, you know, with the process of drawing in the case of Edward Munch, and here with the, the sort of the, the sound and, the, and the, the feelings of the body in the situation of, of um, going on stage. So that, were, that was just uh, sort of a very quick uh, list of examples of what we're doing right now. Uh, this is ongoing, and, um, uh, and we're also uh, actually starting a bunch of new projects. I don't have time to list everything, but uh, this is what we're doing. Thank you. One, one, one thing is sure that the guy who decided the prompter here did not wear dresses on an everyday basis. <laughs> so I'm going to stand here because I can't jump around with this. Um, okay, let's see. It's here. Next one. Next one. Yes, great. 
My name is uh, Lisbeth Klastrup. Uh, I'm an associate professor and so lucky to be the head of the Digitalis, the Digital Life and Social Practices uh, Research Group. And I think in the constellation or in the federation, we uh, are the group which address the social aspects of play and gaming and playful practices. And that's not just how we do things together, but also how social and cultural norms affect what we do when we sit alone in our room, uh, playing and gaming and exploring uh, the digital world. And what I'll be doing is just also uh, in very much the same way as Anna's, just uh, talking you through a few of the things that we're doing right now and also what our general kind of research framework is. And that's what I'll be starting with here. Um, so in, we could say that what unites us in the group is that we study digital, social and cultural practices that emerges through um, playful ac explorative activities and also how these are activities are reconfiguring social constellations and rituals like perhaps we play in different ways we talk to each other in different ways we mourn in different ways because digital media allows us to do this and because we're constantly also pushing the borders of what digital media can do uh, when we are together uh, with other people through digital media and what we are looking at right now is both um, focusing on important life transitions. For instance, when we are stepping into adulthood, where we are starting to wo vote, when we are becoming citizens, what role does digital, do digital media play in this transition? And also some of us, uh, notably Stine Godved and myself, are very much looking also at death and the afterlife. What happens when someone dies? How do we deal with that in different ways through digital media and on social media, not the least? We are also, in, in, in terms of that, looking at the reconfiguration of social practices, rituals and constellations. For instance, are game practices changing as we also have, like when we are starting to use VR or we have new forms of computer games. Well, that, what does that mean to the way we are doing things together or doing things on our own? What is going to happen with, with the metaverse when we're all, all running around in Mark Zuckerberg's magnificent <laughs> VR world, uh, talking to each other and meeting each other in new ways? Will that actually reconfigure how we act to, together or act towards each other? And what kind of trust systems are the digital media help us building when kind of we suddenly are talking about politics and TikTok, that kind of things? What happens with the politics as a field? What happens with us as political citizens? That are some of the kind of big questions we are looking at uh, right now. And now I'm going to give you a few examples of, of some of the things we're looking at at the moment. Uh, Stine Gottwill is looking at a system called Replica, which is an intelligent human being, or it's actually an AI bot, and she's exploring what does an AI know about grief. She's talking to this bot about grief and grief experiences and also seeing what can you actually use an AI system for uh, in that uh, context. But it also it's also partly a perhaps gamified experience in that it's also like a bit like having a Tamagotchi. 
in a sense, Stina says and shows she's also starting to look at what, what experiences do we have and what do we know about people's relationships to Tamagotchis? Can that tell us something about how we actually interact with this kind of AI bot? And also kind of, this is also one way where we are bridging uh, to the AI group uh, in terms of what we're looking at. I'm moving into a project but I'm looking at what happens when we connect to the dead live on your screen. Uh, that sounds maybe a bit strange, but actually spiritual seances where you actually uh, engage with a medium in a live stream on Facebook asking them to connect to you to your grandfather who has just recently passed is actually quite a big thing. Uh, this woman up here has one million followers. She is really gaming the Facebook system to use these seances as a way to earn a lot of money and exploring ways in which she can engage people by using a lot of the features that uh, um, Facebook offers people that are do, like running a business on Facebook. Uh, the other picture is from a big group with half a million people following the group that is discussing, is there actually life after death? What does spirits like? Did I see a ghost in my living room yesterday? That kind of thing, which is actually very much about exploring the possible. What is possible after life? Does ghost exist? Sometimes in a more or less playful way where they're trying to see ghost faces and everything, that kind of thing. And I think that's very interesting because that's our, one of the more explorative, sometimes even playful practices that goes beyond the radar in what we look at, what we look at social media, but it's actually quite big. And it's one way and perhaps a new way also of engaging with this. Uh, another field we are kind of playing with also as a researcher is the field of politics. Uh, I've been looking at how Danes and politicians use social media uh, in, re in relation to elections since 2005. And then for this election, I've, I'll be using, looking at how people actually use TikTok during the 2022 elections. And that's very much also explorative, playful practice, where especially young politicians used music and green screens and lip syncing and all kinds of features that TikTok offers to actually present political communication in a new way. And my colleague, Gide Stad, who couldn't be here today, is also looking at the TikTok generation and looking at how young citizens that are starting to become citizens because they can start to vote, for instance, are also using social media to gain knowledge about the world and to understand themselves as digital citizens. And she's also doing a long, longitudinal study of how young people have been using digital media and how much they trust or don't trust digital media. And this picture is actually from, from this event called Ungdoms Folkemøde, where uh, she uh, was doing observational studies and interviews uh, this year, also exploring this uh, subject. Finally, in our group, we have uh, Mike Graham, who is doing an entire PhD on uh, social uh, single-player practices in the sense that even, again, if you're playing alone, you are still thinking of yourself in the context of uh, social life and social practices. And, she's, and he's looking at um, the engagement with games, uh, looking at how people are actually playing and how these enactments of sociality not only mirror identities of everyday lives of the individual player, but also touches about the self of a person, both bound by, 
by and free from cultural context. Um, and I know he knows much more about it than me. So also, if you think that this sounds interesting, please come and talk to Mike uh, after this presentation. And I think that's actually all for now. So uh, thank you very much from us. Yeah. this thing I hope it works uh, so that's us dark slide <laughs> yes I'm always the next one um, hi so my name is Paul Borelli I'm uh, and together with Sebastian and a bunch of a lot of other people uh, I'm uh, working in the Center for uh, well, not center, but creative artificial intelligence lab. Sorry, there was a lot of centers which change into something else, right? So, but I'm working also in the Center for Digital Play, and you might ask yourself, like, what's the connection, right? And um, well, Miguel just connected the digital play with pretty much everything, so it, it would be easy, right, to say, like, to, to find a connection. I mean, it's connected to everything. Part of everything is creative AI, so we are connected. But it's more about the the question on. How does this interaction, how does play happen uh, when, uh, especially when it comes to digital play, when uh, a person and a, and a digital artifact actually come into to interact with each other? Like, what is going on? Like, uh, what is going on in people's head? What is going on within uh, the digital artifact? In other words, can we answer this question? Can we make machines that understand us? create like us, and maybe surprise us. Um, the steps are very important because uh, play happens only from the interaction between uh, like these two entities, digital play. And with this, within this interaction, a situation is created which, is, uh, uh, which can be uh, understood from like the outside as a social practice, uh, from uh, like it has an impact in society, politics, uh, in the way we view humanity. But uh, our perspective is trying to actually understand it uh, and the mechanism that created, that generated. Uh, so, can we actually uh, understand how we uh, create artifacts, how we play, how we? Uh, generate ideas by replicating it using machine learning and artificial intelligence. Well, the people which are trying to do this in uh, in, in many ways are these. Uh, so, you, if you get there is a contact in the last slide where you can actually uh, find the links to all of us if you want to uh, uh, talk with us. But to give you an example, how we want to actually try to explore and understand and decompose and deconstruct this process in order to understand to. Uh, eviscerate the mechanics and the little interactions in it. Uh, I'll give you a couple of examples. So this is uh, an, an example of when it starts. Yes, of uh, whether we could actually replicate the process of morphogenesis. Morphogenesis is the generation of like a complex organism from like small cells uh, using uh, something which is called a, uh, a, well, a neural cellular automaton, which is basically a, a form of like a computing, a, a, a computing algorithm, 
which is able to uh, uh, generate uh, structures out of simple rules and simple interactions. And in this case, the idea is to be able to regenerate complete organisms or complete structures out of like little components of it. Uh, and it's not only generating static structures, but even structures which are actually able to uh, uh, um, and have uh, actions and being able to have like a functional uh, um, uh, activities. And this is very important because it tells us not only uh, that we can do something, but also how that is actually happening. Uh, on the other side of the spectrum, still trying to answer the same question, uh, can we actually try to understand like uh, what happens from the human side of play? So uh, when somebody uh, in this specific, this is an, uh, uh, an experiment that we're running uh, at the moment, like uh, hopefully in the next couple of months, can we understand why people find uh, certain images unattractive? Uh, there are behavioral, there is a, a phenomenon called the Uncanny Valley. There are a lot of uh, uh, behavioral hypotheses on what is the, uh, the, the reason for why certain uh, images appear more eerie than other images. But uh, uh, can we verify uh, the actual, or can we understand the actual brain mechanism that generate that kind of response? If we can uh, understand those specific brain mechanisms, can we actually make a machine which uh, gets scared when sees an image? Can we actually make a machine which has the same kind of response? And does that tell us something about uh, uh, whether we can, on purpose, generate like images which are more eerie than other images? Does that tell us something about uh, what is the, uh, uh, can we change that sort of like a, a perception mechanism so that like that uh, reaction does not happen or can we amplify that sort of reaction? So this is kind of the spectrum. We want to understand uh, this sort of interaction and we do it from like uh, building it uh, bottom up from like uh, 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 creating artifacts, digital and physical and from the top down by modeling uh, like the human behavior, cognition, uh, affective states, and all this sort of stuff. Uh, we currently have a number of active projects. Uh, like uh, this is like a list. I don't know. I just added a list. I thought it was. It, it sounded like very professional. Um, and uh, Sebastian is uh, like we're very proud of Sebastian being able to actually have strike an, an ERC consolidator grant, which is like I mean, it's rock and roll. Uh, we play with a lot of toys, uh, and the toys are there in order to allow us to perceive or to model perception, model cognition, and to create and generate uh, uh, digital and physical artifacts. Uh, we actually do a lot of education, uh, which is a, a part of, a, uh, I think it's a, a confirmation of the pervasiveness of digital play in many ways, uh, because using this digital play perspective, uh, we ended up not only like, educate, like uh, educating students in the mastering games uh, in, in many courses, but also outside of it, like uh, a master in digital design and a bachelor in data science. I mean, you see them. Um, and this is because these concepts and these studies, these like mechanisms that we are like trying to understand and model are at the foundation of like not only like uh, uh, games but play at large, which includes like uh, many other like ways we interact with reality. 
Another peculiarity of our groups, like uh, which is not necessarily like very different from other groups, but we are pretty proud of it. It's like we have an extensive like portfolio of collaborations with companies, including making a company like uh, uh, together with. Uh, uh, lots of other partners. Um, and that's pretty much it uh, from me. I will, uh, again, if you can get hold of the slides, you can get hold of, uh, uh, but we have a very easy to remember like uh, uh, URL, so it should be easy to find us. Uh, and I'll leave the podium to Hannah. Thank you. Good to be here. Um, this is the games group. I'm not the leader, as you know, but I was asked to present my work because at the time when somebody had to be asked, uh, there was no leader and somebody had to present something, so here I am. <laughs> Let's see how it goes. Uh, I believe these are who we are. So, uh, In the presentation of, say, media, art and design group, I by Anders, uh, there was a certain single-mindedness, but that is far away from what we are. However, these are the members, Professor Espen Arset, Associate Professors Hajo Bakke, Daniel Sermak, Pavel Krabacic, Runa Nielsen, myself, and then three PhD researchers, one of them is already on the way out, uh, Nina Crotoro, Leon Ziao, and Dom Ford. Sorry, I need to make my notes a little bit larger if I know how to do that because I cannot see the notes at all. Okay, there you go. So, as of yesterday, not a few hours ago, but as of yesterday, we became slightly more organized as we chose the leadership arrangement for the group. And the group will be led in great, let's say, absolute harmony between Hajo Bakke and Daniel Semak Sassenrath, where Hajo will be a little bit more leader than, than Daniel, as, as, <laughs> as was agreed, uh, the contact point. So far, we have claimed the space and built the wall that we know is there, but which we are very well capable of climbing over. We already have all sorts of stuff growing in there behind the, behind the gate uh, or the wall. We need some time to organize ourselves before we can open that door for public and for those well versed in game development we may say that at the moment the door functionality is just not implemented yet. Uh, in lack of simulation we rely on rep representation and we know that that doesn't help us so much. Without opening the door as such I can share some things with you already. While we might have weeding to do even when the garden is ready, it's not going to be a Japanese garden. We will probably go for a form of permacultural gardening to accept a degree of mess, misplacement and disorder, because this is the way that we can do sustainable research in this group. And what I'm representing here today is my own view of how things might go. Uh, if you see my colleagues rolling their eyes in the audience, that's pretty much all they can do. <laughs> uh, as a fan, fandom researcher, I, I always want to include game fan created content on the slide, so here comes. In today's program, our group comes last, but uh, we are also in a way the beginning. As Miguel told, 
The Center for Computer Games Research was founded in 2006, and the focus area of games existed at ITU long before that. And I myself remember very clearly when I came to ITU uh, in 2004, 18 years ago, to give my first presentation in an academic conference at ITU, which was very, very nice. Uh, the event at the time was called Games Research uh, Design Research Seminar, and I believe many of the people who were there at the time were in the audience today or here as members of the research groups who we are going through. Yet, the games research group is not a bunch of Luddites or outcasts who insist on keeping things as they used to be, but simply a group of researchers who believe in the power of recognizing games as useful, if not unique, lenses to play in the world. This allows us to look at play through distinguishable phenomena and objects, whether culturally, commercially, formally or artistically marked. We may even look beyond the digital stated in the center name, now that we have dropped the computer from the title of our group. That's a peculiar twist of being a Luddite. So why talk about games and what are the benefits? Whether we like it or not, the society names certain objects and activities games. It is important that we at the center of digital play accept the language and social and cultural framing of games as one context for play to emerge. We can frame our research by looking at things that are structured or framed as games through the name, price or a set of rules that makes them separable from other games, other types of cultural products and other commodities. This is also why there is the MSc for games with two tracks, one in game design and one in game development, closely associated with this research centre. Looking at games further allows us to look at groups of people, we call them players, around these specific cultural artifacts, as well as into the creation and creators of games. The lens of games offers us the perspective of play being something that can be designed and facilitated by experts and, among many other things, planned for educational or awareness raising purposes. Now, Miguel, where well, you would say that's not play at all, but I have the ball now, it's, it's, it's play. We know that players will find every excuse to fight the system and play against the grain, but someone needs to design the games in the first place, even if that sem sem uh, someone is an AI. So I was asked to present a part of my own research, um, and I tried to present it from the point of view of how looking at this thing through the lens of games forced me and allowed me to look into specific things in, in what I'm looking at. And what I am looking at, what I have been studying for the past couple of years, uh, is how games and play uh, games and politics intersect, and specifically in the context of Hong Kong democracy protests. Um, I will not make political claims or take a political stance. The case is there just because I lived nine years in Hong Kong, the situation was close to me and it is just something that was very, very readily available and part of my everyday life in Hong Kong. This study has been done with the PhD student Rhys Jones who is at the Hong Kong Polytechnic University. So if we think about games and politics, the first things that might come to your mind are games that teach about democratic election process or how 
how politics work in general. And these games are available online uh, in all sorts of places. We might also talk about and think about identity politics or gender and sexual, sexual politics in gen, uh, specific. Refugee politics, like in the Syrian journey, uh, or climate politics, like in Darfur is dying. If we want to have a historical glimpse, we might go all the way back more than 100 years and look at the games that some of the greatest female game designers have come up with. Panka uh, Squid, which was a, about the universal suffrage, women's right to vote, and the landlord's game, which was an exploration into how gr land grabbing is a problem in, in the world, in the specific society. Existing research also covers the idea of video game activism as the intentional use of video game technology to bring about social or political change. My colleague Daniel Sermak-Sassenrath has built one categorization of different political activism in games and Jones, Robert Jones in 2007 <coughs> proposed his. This is kind of an amalgamation of two, two, those two approaches of how games uh, can tackle political issues, starting from actual standalone games that address political issues, going all the way to mods and in-game rallies, skins, machinima, uh, particular ways of playing games such as the vegan run of uh, Zelda. By political activism, I talk about what in the Aberles categorization would be reformative social movements that seek to change something specific about the social structure. They may seek a more limited change, but are targeted at the entire population. So they are, if, if, if this is your, your area, this is the kind of political activism I'm talking about here. And what was important for my research, because I was looking at Hong Kong, was to recognize that plays, games are played differently in different parts of the world and in different countries. And when we talk about authoritarian regimes, we need to accept that there is game censorship ongoing, there are game bans, even player bans, and there is surveillance happening in the games. Uh, these are games that all have been banned or, or players in different parts of the world. I don't have time to go deeper into this, but game censorship happens in many different countries. Similarly, game companies and businesses are increasingly taking a stance in relation to how their games can be played and where. And we have seen a lot of quite significant examples in relation to Russian war in, in Ukraine, where game companies are making charitable donations to Ukraine or banning their games in, in Russia because as, as, a, as a statement, right? And then about the Hong Kong case, real quickly, I'm going to go through a couple of examples of how games were used in the protest in Hong Kong. Um, this is part of the increasing mainland influence in Hong Kong and the protests that happened after the anti-extradition bill um, movement in 19 and 20, very much subdued by COVID-19. 
It happened everywhere in Hong Kong, and this was our university at the time where one of the biggest sieges happened in, uh, in November 2019, exactly three years ago. So we saw that there was this really interesting grassroots political activism happening all over the city in the physical space as well as virtually that took games as means of conveying message to uh, share knowledge, to encourage more people to protest. One of the things we saw was protest art, adopting game characters as protest icons, bringing game material through skins and modifications, uh, protest materials through skins and modifications into the games, uh, such as into Untitled Duck Game, and also using game characters that have a specific meaning for the young people, typically young people participating in the protests, in physical form into the protest sites. We also saw a very interesting phenomenon of game slang, so game-specific terminology used to convey messages during the protest. So there would, for instance, be a situation where you need to tell to somebody else that there are police officers coming out from a certain location, and they would convey this message by saying that you need to, um, you need to block the spawn point. So any, any gamer here, you know what it means, that this is where they spawn out, right? Um, those people who were protesting and using a lot of cocktails were called fire mages and things like this. So there was a very interesting way of bringing the culture from games into the political action. Moreover, there was this category of tactical use of existing games emerging at the protest sites. And I'm going to give you just a couple of examples here again. Pokemon Go usernames were used in the Pokemon Go gyms in, in important key locations of the protest to convey messages. So you would name your Pokemon in a way that somebody looking at the gym and seeing that you are the one occupying the gym uh, knows that this, for instance, this location is safe or something specific is happening around this location. Another tactical use of uh, games during the protest were in-game protests. And this is something we have seen for many years, not only here in, in Hong Kong protests, but different kinds of protests in-game have been done for many causes. And also regarding Ukraine, uh, Elder Scrolls Online, Final Fantasy, <clears throat> 14, these protests take place every now and then. Moving on to modification, you can see I'm, I'm censoring my material as, as much as I can here because it is actually risky <laughs> to show these things uh, because of the current law that, that makes it very difficult to talk about these things, um, whether in China, in Hong Kong or outside of Hong Kong. But these are examples of where Actually, old games such as hopscotch or this ritual of villain hitting where you wish bad luck to somebody by hitting their picture or something that belongs to them with the shoe or dance machines were turned into political actions by skinning, placing some of the imageries and representations from relevant to the political situation to these games. And then protest games. So these would be the standalone games that 
try to simulate some of the situations in the game, typically either from the pro-protest or from the protesters' point of view, or from the government point of view, because some of the games have been official as well, uh, very much banned and censored online. These are games, one of them from the protesters' point of view and one of them from the uh, from the pro-government group of people point of view. And very interestingly in Iran, um, very recently we have seen games and different actions through games that tackle the current political situation as well. For instance, the Basi Militia has created this game where, which is against uh, US, right? Where you are have the opportunity to rescue uh, George Floyd uh, from the American police. Very interesting case. So, we came up with the categorization. We looked into different ways in which games are, are being used in the, in the protest. And then my conclusion here would be to argue that there is value in looking at these things not just as play, but through the concept of games. And I do think that looking at games here allows or maybe sometimes even forces us to look into the historical backdrop of protest games so we can see the continuity, uh, what was before, and it's kind of, it's convenient to do that. Acknowledge that games have developers, publishers, countries of origin that influence their development and use. This is very easy to forget and for some time we have talked about games it's not mattering where the games come from, but in this case it's very, very important that we recognize that games come from a specific culture and they can be, for instance, banned for that reason. Look at the regional, commercial, political and social influences behind development, use and availability of play. Study how, as technical systems, games allow certain kind of modification of play by players and discourses, um, discourage other use. So we can also look at how something, some games are not so good for protest and some other games are better for protest. Study how play cultures persist beyond the mom moments of play and offer a growing ground for action around but separate from games. Right? So we have the same group of players around a game, around a commercial product, but that group persists outside of the gameplay mo moments. Study how play facilitated by games is much more than commercial objects as official views into what is acceptable is contested. And it forces us to study how games as vehicles of play turn into instruments of expressing political power, both by individuals and by even national governments and businesses. And I would like to leave it there. Thank you. I will just say thank you very much, everybody, for joining us today. Now you know where we are. All this slide with all the contact and so on uh, will be there while we go out. And hopefully there's something there to, uh, so there's a promise that I can fulfill, that there's something there to drink and, and eat. Um, I guess we exist now to the public. Uh, we are now the Center for Digital Play. And if you're curious about what we do or you want to Tag along, um, here we are. Thank you so much. And thank you.